You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. So deal breakers will eventually get people. Um, I want monogamy. I'd like an open marriage. Fair enough. We can't be together. But but people don't have those conversations because once they feel attached, the only thing they're afraid of is loss. And uh, you know, I want to say that being a couple therapist, there are worse things than that loss, such as 20 years from now, and now th- they're angry with each other for the same reasons. Um, you cannot go forward if there's a deal breaker. Uh, It's like a cancer cell that will actually undo the relationship now or soon. That was Stan Tatkin, PACT developer and co-founder of the PACT Institute. PACT stands for Psychobiological Approach to Couple Therapy. He joins me today to discuss why couple relationships are so hard at the same time that they can be so great and needed. The root challenge is that we're reactive beings first and fast and thoughtful, loving beings second and slowly. But the opportunity here is that knowing this fact about ourselves allows us to build relationships that enable us to thrive. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, And I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved SaneBox for years, and I think you will too. Stan, thanks so much for joining me today. Relationships are such an important part of our lives, and um, challenges with them can be such a... um, terrible part of our lives at the same time. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. And thanks for joining us. Great to see you, Charlie. Great to see you. You know, I was listening um, to your TED talk, um, Relationships are Hard, But Why? And your sort of opening was like, people are difficult. Uh, yes. And it reminded me of the, uh, you know, of um, Albert Camus sort of point that hell is other people. Right. Um, and, and this is really interesting thing, because on the when we look at the high moments of our life, right. a lot of times it's these really powerful relationships that we're in and the things that happen because of those relationships. Right. And yes. when we look at the really terrible moments of our lives, 
there because of the relationships we're in and the experiences that happen because of those relationships. Right. Um, and so I know you get asked this a lot, but I want to kind of pull people in. Like, why are relationships so hard? Well, there, there, there are certain relationships that are harder than others. You know, working with a child, right? Your, your child uh, is uh, can be very difficult. Um, but love relationships, like working with children or being with children, your own children particularly, the reason they're hard is because they have a long memory. And so in a love relationship, we are with our what's called our primary attachment figure. We're with somebody who occupies the office of primary, meaning that they become deep family. They're one degree of everybody else. And so because those relationships remind us of experiences we had before the age of 12 with our most important caregivers, that's what makes it ultimately the situation where we can heal each other, where we can push each other forward developmentally, but we can also do the opposite. We can we can reinforce things that are our worst fears. And so it has a long memory and it's a dependency relationship. We don't have that relationship, generally speaking, with friends or business partners, even siblings. So yeah, that's why it's very, there are other reasons why it's very hard too, but we can start with that one. We can start with those. Yeah. Um, you know, in some ways it reminds me of the um, common military saying that generals are always fighting the last war. And yes. in some ways in our love relationships, it seems like it's not necessarily the last war, but it's, you know, some war that we've had with um, our primary relationships or those those fundamental family of origin relationships. Um, and then we play those out our entire lives. Is that close to accurate? If you Yes. If you consider that all we are is memory, right? We know what we've experienced and that's about as fancy as we get. The rest of it is we are memory driven. We do things according to recognition. Recognition is lightning fast. Thinking is very slow. And so that's one part of it. The other part of it is that we have automatic brains. Our brains are fully automatic. <laughs> Most of the day uh, is done without thought, automatically with very cheap memory, very fast memory. And this causes a problem. It's great for getting to work and not having to think about it. It's great for a relationship after a little while because it's more relaxed. We don't have to pay attention. We don't have to be so present all the time. That's good news because it's energy conserving. However, because it's energy conserving and because it's memory-based, we make all these errors. We make all these mistakes in perception, in communication, in memory, and we get into fights. We start anticipating each other based on not just our experience together, but everyone that ever heard us, everyone who ever made us feel insecure. And that's, again, why one of the reasons why this is so difficult. Yeah. You know, this is interesting because it's um, normally when we think of, say, Kahneman's work in thinking fast and slow, we're yes. normally looking at the cognitive aspects of things, how we make decisions, right. you know, the biases in our decisions. But what I'm hearing is you're also saying that translates over to our emotional behaviors as well. So it's not just that we cognize, you know, something quickly or we recognize something quick. It's also that we feel, I'm, I'm translating, that we sure. feel quickly, <laughs> right? We feel quickly and intensely um, where, and, and that's where some friction can happen because, you know, memories and emotions, all those are, you know, we can't so easily separate cognition from emotion, right? Um, mm -hmm. In any way, but I just really like that, you know, there's there's that also that parallel between feeling quickly and feeling slowly yes. and, and, and going right. that way. So like Kahneman talks about, when we talk about cognition, 
we're talking about fancy areas that are very energy expending that cost a lot of resources like glucose and oxygen to run. So those are slow. Those are areas, I won't get into it, but part of the neocortex in the front area, and they are error-correcting structures. However, because they demand a lot of resources, when we start to get excited, those resources are not so available. And so we are more likely to operate, act and react according to recognition. That is not emotional memory. That's body memory. So I, you're, you know, I made a mistake when I said it's good to see you, Charlie. Well, because we're seeing each other, your audience doesn't know that. Uh, they're just hearing us. Okay, so but I can see you. So, so you can see me. So if I were to look a certain way, if I were to turn and look away, if I were to put my hand up, if I were to roll my eyes, these could be things that you remember as dangerous, as threatening. And you're going to react, yes, emotionally. But the very first thing is you recognize something that seems threatening to you. And, you know, and so that triggers emotion. There's a sequence here. And to make matters worse, we have, we have a brain structure that has shortcuts. For instance, your audience may understand the, uh, uh, the structure amygdala. That's mm -hmm. people very much understand that word. And uh, the amygdala has shortcuts. There are, uh, there are ways that it will activate without any kind of thought at all. And so these are instances where cops pull their gun because they think somebody has a, a gun, but it's really a phone. That's lined up also with biases. So uh, this is the human condition, and people don't understand that this is not about personality, not even really about psychology, because most of our behavior that is recognition-based is sub-psychological. Uh, this means that the human condition is to get into trouble more often than not, is to go to war over love. That's survival of the species, right? Nothing personal here, mm -hmm. but it feels very personal. Yeah, well, this reminds me of the conversation that I had with Todd Cashton um, sometimes, maybe six months ago, it doesn't matter. But um, the point that we had on the podcast was like, um, he's coming from an evolutionary biology, uh, biology perspective. And there's like so much of what we do is at that le that sort of primal level. And I know your work converges here as well, right? Yes, it does. Uh, yeah. Is that, you know, we think of ourselves as, you know, the thinking person, the thinking, you know, animal, which yes. It's true sometimes. Sort of. Yeah. Um, but we're the feeling animal first, right? And then yes. so I think there's more insight in Aristotle way back in the day when we started, you know, looking at what it means to be human. But part of what his point that we overlook is it means to be an animal. It means to be a creature. And it means to be this right. particular organism in the world that acts a certain way. And yes. our human nature is layered on top of that, but we can't get away right. from that at the same time. No, we can't. We are animals. And, uh, you know, that was Damasio's book, or a big book on uh, Descartes' era. Uh, error. Uh, and that is, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. But it's actually, I feel, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, feelings wag the tail uh, of the dog. And so... Uh, so we have to sort of reorient ourselves, and unfortunately, our our society um, is lacking knowledge in civics and in the human brain. <laughs> and and these are two important things that we got to know. Uh, humans are messy creatures. Uh, the brain is engineered ad hoc. It's not perfect. We make all these errors and mistakes. And some of those errors we can see around us 
in we, uh, how we see people act and react to each other, communities, uh, cultures, countries, uh, governments, all of these things. This, these are the macrocosms of the couple, which is the smallest unit of the society. Two people, two different brains, acting and reacting separately, but tied together biologically, and what could possibly go wrong. What could possibly go wrong, indeed. It always cracks me up when it's like what we're talking about in 2018 is a um, it's a footnote to something we've been talking about for 3,000 years. Like what just yes. occurred to me is sort of the Socratic, you know, I know nothing sort of thing. And yes. like, why would one take that posture? Well, in our day, what we might say is because we have so many biases, yes. <laughs> because we have so many errors in thinking and judgment, you're yes. far better off to start off from, I'm really not sure what's going on. Right. And working yes. your way to it as opposed to I know what's right and I'm going to do it. And, you know, and so it just cracks me up every time we come back to these perennial problems explained in a new scientific way. Yes. If if only we had early education and I mean, starting very young on two things. One, how to learn because uh, it took me 40 years to learn that and how to be in relationship. What are relationships? Um, uh, you know, how do you do that? And I know there are some schools that do that, that try to focus on social emotional learning. But I'm talking more than that, um, more than just the, uh, you know, thou shalt learn how to collaborate and cooperate with others uh, as you learn in kindergarten. But there's something more enduring. And we don't have that. We don't have that idea uh, baked in. So that would be something I would love to see, but I would also like a pony. So there you go. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Actually, you could have my pony because they seem like a lot of work. Um, but you but, have one. <laughs> well, if I had a pony, you could have oh, my okay. fictive pony, <laughs> right? So when I get one, Stan, I will send it to your way. Uh, send it to you, and then you have to send me pictures once a month or so. Um, okay. And so, um, you know, also to that point. Um, it, it occurs to me that the other thing when we start talking about the feelings domain of things is like I, I look back at my education and I had like if we had to look at feelings and, and the ways to talk about feelings as an analogy to how many crayons you get in a box. Like I had that eight box, you know, that eight color box, right, sure. where just the primary colors and a few others. Mm -hmm. And that was the range of my emotional communication. Right. right and yeah. so I was like, I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I'm happy. Um, you know, just like right. those macros, not the nuanced sort of magenta feelings. Right. And where right, you're like, yes. what is that? And so I think learning how to learn and learning how to think, but learning how to differentiate between how you feel in different scenarios, right, um, right, can go a long way because there's a big difference between being mad and being annoyed. Um, and But a lot of times we don't learn that until we're 30 years old. And it's like, oh, that's what's been going on the whole time, <laughs> right? So that's, that's interesting because you're talking about primary colors, uh, but there are primary emotions. For instance, in the beginning, as an infant, you don't have these emotions. You have pain and and not pain, right? Uh, but then you begin to uh, experience other things, joy, happiness, excitement. Um, around uh, two or three, you start to learn sadness. You, you About three, you get disgust, right? And then you start to get blended affects. That is the blending that you're talking about, more of a, a lush color will. Um, now, annoyed happens to be within the range of angry, right? Uh, but there are a lot of people who have something called alexithymia. They actually do not know what they're feeling. They can't put words to body sensations. Some of these people 
most of them can learn. Uh, some actually have a problem with this area. Uh, so not everybody can do this, and some people can do it better than others. Uh, some people can read faces better than others, read their interoceptive, that is, body cues, better than others. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of this has to do with experience in the first 18 months of life, and some of it also has to do with genetics and constitution and, uh, you know, uh, things we're good at, things we're not so good at. Uh, but it would be nice if there was more emphasis on on feelings. And again, there are some educational um, institutions that do emphasize it, but they're private schools and uh, they have their problems too. Yeah, I really appreciate that point, Stan. Um, and I think even even in that case to where you have the um, alexithymia, right, where you yes. can't where you can't you can't differentiate it, knowing that you have that is still useful yeah. information, right? Um, as opposed to just not knowing and and not seeing that there's a whole world of experience. It'd be like not knowing you were blind your entire life, right? Yes. Um, in, in a certain way. So uh, thanks so much for that. Do we have, I mean, do you have any rough statistics on, on like how much of the population that, that affects? Well, no, I don't have any of that. I do know that that in my work, which is a psychobiological approach, um, it's a capacity model, developmental capacity model. And so we're always looking at what people can and cannot do in the social emotional realm. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no brain uh, that is, uh, you know, that is equally good at everything. Uh, we all have deficits. The question is, what are those deficits? And now, Interestingly enough, we, we ha are more aware of them, maybe a little hyper aware through what we know now about things like autistic spectrum and Alex uh, 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 things having to do with uh, learning disabilities. Those are caught in school or work, but the ones that I'm talking about are really actually problematic in love relationships. And the reason for that is that of all the things we do, love and compared to work is by far the hardest. It's the most resource uh, expending. And whatever I can't do is going to affect you. So let's say I'm not good, uh, I don't look at eyes for my reading of cues, I look at the mouth. I am going to cause more threat in the relationship, not because I intend to, but because there is something I can't do. And that could be a problem when it comes to creating excitement, uh, attraction, but more importantly, in uh, in conflict management and in distress relief. So, because I may not know that I'm alexithymic, uh, that could actually cause a problem in the safety and security of our relationship. If we were in a relationship, or I cannot uh, I cannot self regulate very well at all, and you're not very good um, either. Uh, we could have a lot of threat in this system. So th this matter that you're bringing up here, this unevenness in a, the abilities to co-regulate each other's nervous systems, to read social emotional cues, to be fast, and I mean really fast on the draw, this is what gets people into trouble, no matter what relationship uh, they're into. And we look at that uh, when we work psychobiologically, which is the study of the brain and the body. And so there's there's a thread that we've been sort of dancing around in the sense where um, where we are on the one hand more primed for things like war and fighting than we are That's for right. deep sort of nurturing relationships. So we're primed that way. We have unequal 
or unequal sort of capacities in the emotional realm, right? So yes. we're already primed to fight. Yes. Um, we're showing up with with different cards and different colors, right? That's right, yes. Um, and then we end up injecting our historical relationships into that sort of scenario. And so it creates... Yes. Um, I, a, com a complexity. It creates this complexity. And so... Um, you know, it's it's really interesting, and I just wanted to pull those together because this is sure. the sort of crucible that we end up in in our couple relationships. Obviously, you talk much more about that. So, look, draw that out a bit more because again, this is your body of work talking about how all these things sure. come together. So let let me correct one thing a little bit, just slightly. Uh, we're because we're built more for war. That doesn't mean that we don't need. For survival, we don't need to be tethered to somebody. We are dependent creatures. We pair bond in herds. From the very beginning, we're nothing without another. Um, we get our sense of self from another. We get our sense of security from another. And this is a fluid process that goes on through the lifespan. So it isn't that we don't need uh, deep relationships. It is that it, those relationships are interfered with by the other need, which is to survive. And unfortunately, our brain does not necessarily differentiate between a dangerous face or a dangerous set of words and necessarily somebody coming at us with a knife. It sounds, uh, it sounds very um, uh, uh, outlandish, but it is true. And so our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up. When we feel, hear something we recognize from someone who we remember uh, can hurt us, this will hurt us. And we act and react as if uh, we are being threatened by a predator. That complicates our need for love. So we're in a constant tension here for our need for other people, our need to depend on somebody, rely on somebody, and also our fear of getting hurt. Um, that's a kind, And now, the, the harder our childhood was, uh, the more trauma in our childhood, the balance now shifts a bit more to more wariness and more vigilance um, to all these threat cues out in our environment, and that makes love even a little bit harder. But having said that, I, I don't want your audience to think that this is just a bummer. Um, it's always been this way. It will always be this way. And there are ways to understand this so that it doesn't become such a problem and that we can, um, uh, if we're hurt by people, we need to be healed by people. We can't do this alone anyway. So we go to our clergy member, we go to a family member who's safe, we go to a therapist and we repair there, or we go into love relationships where uh, there's tremendous repair. So all is, this is not intended to be a, a downer. Yeah, I, I appreciate, I appreciate both the clarification and that. Um, a lot of times on, on the show, part of the goal is to illuminate the hard, not yes. so that the hard wins, but so that we can actually engage with it and understand what's going on. Um, yes. Because when we think relationships and love are supposed to be easy and they're right. not right yeah. then we end up telling a story about how we are somehow uniquely defective or the person that we're right. in relationship with is somehow uniquely defective because it should be easy but it's not so it's either me or it's the person when it could just be that it's hard in general right and yeah. you're just human right and that's what it means and so i appreciate that and um, that's kind of where we go like yeah let's talk about the hard but let's also see how we can overcome and address it and realize that when we walk home at five o'clock or when we walk in the door at five o'clock and we're triggered and our partner's triggered, um, that there are things that we can do, not just let that devolve into, you know, two hours of spatting um, or not talking. Right. Um, we, can, we can address that. Uh, right. There are overrides. 
there are ways of being able to calm each other, regulate each other. There are things we can do, like becoming experts on each other, uh, knowing uh, how to predict one another. And and more importantly, understanding that is the purpose of the relationship, that together we survive and thrive, and together we can also destroy each other. So uh, uh, nature doesn't care about this, by the way. This is uh, totally up to us. Nature cares about pair bonding for procreation, not long-term relationship. So, yeah, this is a learning, an education, and unfortunately, many of us didn't see that in our families. We didn't see our parents being good uh, uh, managers or masters of each other. We didn't see them fight and make up. We didn't see these things, so we don't know. Um, and the good news is that we can learn. The good news is we can learn. Now we've mentioned that. Um, I'm, I'm very. I'm going to short phrase this. Like we've mentioned that relationships can be work or are work, right? Either either one or both through, right? Um, and so we have to work and to, to get them to where we want to be so that we do thrive together and we do, um, you know, have this, this need met. And there are some things um, that might predict relationships that don't work out. Um, what are yeah. some of those things? Well, on a biological level, there are two nervous systems that may be uh, so reactive that uh, that they amplify each other too much and they don't get along. Because this is subpsychological, it's nobody's fault. But uh, this is not common. This is actually very uncommon, but it does occur. The things that people do that are mistakes are as follows. One, they come from a one-person psychological system, we call it an insecure model, where the family operated in ways that was too unfair, too unjust, and too insensitive too much of the time. And then they carry that forward into their adult relationships. The problem with that is that they create these relationships that accrue too much unfairness, resentment, and, and hostility. That's going to take them down. The other is that they don't understand the primacy of the relationship, and they don't have to know how to handle third things that are invading, intruding, uh, or wanting to grab resources from the couple. That, that is children, ex-spouses, parents, uh, workers, bosses, but also alcohol, drugs, pornography, anything that takes time away from the pair or, uh, or casts the other partner into the corner as a third will, demotes them. This, no matter where you are in the world, will cause trouble. There's something baked in uh, to uh, in our DNA about primacy. We don't like being demoted to, uh, you know, to prince when we were king or princess when we were queen. We don't want to be relegated to the third wheel or thrown under the bus. People who do that too much or, you know, even a little bit on a repetitive basis, that's going to end up uh, getting them. Uh, the other is not having a sense of purpose, a sense of why we are together, and vision. What's the point of us? Why do we do this? Why do we get paid the big bucks? What do we do for each other we couldn't pay somebody to do? And if somebody says, well, you can't pay somebody to love you, actually you can. But, uh, <laughs> you, you know, people are burdens. Everyone is a burden. I take you as my burden. You take me as your burden. Uh, we do things for each other, Charlie, that nobody wants to do unless they get paid a lot of money. Therefore, it's a social contract. 
we uh, have each other's backs. We're in the foxhole together. We protect each other from each other, and we have measures for this, and everyone else, and that's how we survive this life. The foxhole is safe. It's not supposed to be a war zone, but the world isn't. So couples that don't have a unified vision don't have shared principles of governance. This is social contract theory. How are two people going to get along and form a society and be fair and just and sensitive? They have to come to terms on what they believe in, and they, they drink the Kool-Aid on that, and they stick to their principles. They're guided and reined in by their principles. Those are the other things that will take uh, couples down because they have no idea why they're together and they have no vision. Those are the big three, I think. Great. I so appreciate that. And and what occurs to me is, you know, whenever we start talking about purpose and vision and principles, like yes. guys like me and you, we love it because we know those become the guide rails of life and decisions and things like that. Because yes. you can always return to them and they don't change. That's well, they don't change. Yeah. They don't generally. change generally. Like they might change a little bit. Like your priorities will change once you become a parent, right? right. You because you have an identity change. But that's a sort of advanced topic, right? But generally, they don't change. Right. Um, but the the pushback, or at least the um, the obstacle or challenge that people will sort of relay back to me is, but how do we come up with these principles and vision and and, and things like that? It seems like, you know, yes. It would be great if we could land, if we can put the world on pause and we can come into a, a couple bubble um, right. and then we can, you know, have our, our convention of, you know, of governance and come out yes. with that. But ain't nobody got time for that. So how do we in this really busy world make the time to come back to these guiding principles, visions and values? Well, when you're someone like me who sees couples every day, day in, day out, my question, my response would be, uh, how couldn't you have time for that? When I see what I see, yeah. uh, it's, it's incredibly uh, uh, dumb and, and immature to not think of these things ahead of time instead of flying by your seat of your pants and just assuming you know what you're doing. Uh, people are too complicated for that. So why do we have religion? Why was there a Ten Commandments? Well, it's because people were killing each other. People were animals. People, it was the Wild West. Somebody had to come along and say, some greater being, somebody higher up is watching you, and thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill, not because I'm in the mood. Thou shalt not kill because um, you don't. Um, it's thou shalt not kill, full stop. So what are our principles that protect us from each other? Uh, uh, just assuming that we're going to do that is not wise. Just like assuming that we're going to be monogamous just because we say so. Why are you going to be monogamous? What's the point? Why is it a good idea for you and your partner to do it? If you cannot defend that, you won't do it. So uh, again, we're animals, we're moody, we're moving through time, we're changeable. If I don't like you, I'm not going to do it. If I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. Uh, what's going to rein us in? Shared beliefs. What are those beliefs? If people think about it, they're pretty universal. Uh, we all want to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> we all want to uh, feel like we're being covered. We all want to feel protected. We all want to feel um, that you know that we're with somebody we can uh, we can uh, trust with our lives. I mean, these are big ticket items. So w this idea of who has time, it's like. 
really? Uh, you know, it's like you're going to go out and you're going to be in the army. Who has time to learn how to how to shoot? Um, okay, good luck to you. So, yeah, th- these are silly responses, and they're ill-informed by people who think it's no problem. We'll just make it up as we go. And unfortunately, there's so many dead soldiers out there who've tried to do that. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate that because um, in some ways that is like the response I come back to, like, I don't have time for to plan. I'm like, how do you not have time to plan? Like, if you don't have time to plan, you don't have time not to, right? Um, right. If you don't have time to sit down and do this, you actually don't have time not to sit down and come up with how are we together. And, and you know, it reminds me of um, simple things like um, when I was a cadet at West Point. Um, oh, yeah, good. There, there was a, you know, as a cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate others who do. Yes. Right. Don't lie, cheat, and steal. Like it was pretty simple, but there's so much that that founds on top of. And I was also a Boy Scout, so you got your scout, you know, scout, yes. scout law, those you type of it. things. And like, I still remember these things. And I'm like, you know what? They're generally good rules to live by. Like, yes. don't lie, cheat, and steal, nor tolerate other people who do. Okay. It's, <laughs> right. It's character. It's yeah. It's all character sort of things like that. And I think my response, aside from the like, you got to make time for it, is just remember that it's simple things. It's not like. You know, if if you can't say it in like two tweets, you're probably overthinking it and making it way too hard, right? Great, great point. <laughs> um, and so you don't have, you know, five minutes to look at your partner and say, you know what, part of the founding of our relationship is we don't lie to each other, yes. right? Um, and we don't do these types of things. Do we agree that that's our charter? You know, do we right. agree that that's who we are? Yes. Okay. And I, and I go, I would go a step further, challenge each other. Why? Is that a good idea? Why? How does it serve a personal good and a mutual good? If I can't sell it to you, then it's not worth anything. If I can't uh, sell it to you specifically, Charlie, I know you. I know you need this because I know your life and everything. This is a good idea for you. This, And you say this, Stan, this is a good idea for you. And I believe it is. Now we're on to something that will be there when we most need it and when we least feel like doing it. I come across this all the time, by the way. Uh, people will say they believe in transparency, full transparency, um, but there are conditions, right? That's if she doesn't get upset with me. That's if I, you know, I think he ought to know. Well, okay, um, that's not going to work because uh, then you're both uh, deciding uh, the conditions upon which you're going to be transparent. That's not transparent. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd go a step further. And uh, usually in the philosophical world, there's somebody who is challenging that, that person's philosophy. Why would you save this person? Why wouldn't you save this person? What's the, you know, that's how you do it. Yeah. Uh, but it requires um, a certain kind of diligence and a certain kind of, of looking forward ahead beyond next week. So yeah. you and I are on the same page with this. Yeah, well, there's that, but also when you do these types of things, it's it's being in a relationship where um, the threat and the trust and, and everything, yes. is, it's such that you can say, well, we don't lie to each other, but your partner might say, except for that thing you did last week, what about that? Because that seems inconsistent with what we're talking about here. And that and will pull res- up a lot of stuff, right. right? And my response, if I'm an honest person here, my response is, you're absolutely right. I am so sorry. That was not cool. That was a lie. That is how you deal with it. Yeah, you don't say, but no, that you misunderstood what I what I meant to say or what what you know. I, no, just you didn't live up to it. Fix it. Yeah, full stop. Deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've talked, you know, what predicts some relationship breakups. Um, 
what are some just general deal breakers that people should be looking for as they're starting to um, sort of come into these types of conversations? Well, one of them is one we just talked about. Let's say, uh, let's say we agree that we're not going to lie to each other, or let's say I want an agreement, but you go, you know, there are some times I don't want you to know certain things. I want privacy. I don't want to have to be an open book. Now, that's fair. It's fair if the person's going to stand by that and the other person's going to stand by, no, I want full transparency and this is why. If that's their stance, that's a deal breaker. The relationship cannot continue because they will necessarily make decisions based on their beliefs. Uh, there's nobody wrong here. You can do it that way, but you better find somebody who believes the same. And then we have to, we have to get you to defend that, why that will work. Same thing with, I want children. You don't want children. And this is what people do. Uh, they come to the precipice that is the end of their relationship. They look down and this is a deal breaker. And then they look up and they go, let's buy a house. Yeah. The, the, the human uh, tendency to kick down, kick the can down the road or defer to another time is so uh, is so legend. So deal breakers will eventually get people. Um, I want monogamy. I'd like an open marriage. Fair enough. We can't be together. But um, but people don't have those conversations because once they feel attached, the only thing they're afraid of is loss. And uh, you know, I want to say that. Being a couple therapist, there are worse things than that loss, such as 20 years from now, and now th- they're angry with each other for the same reasons. Um, you cannot go forward if there's a deal breaker. Uh, it's like a cancer cell that will actually undo the relationship now or soon. So th- these are an examples of d- a big ticket items that nobody can change um, or nobody wants to change and that they can't be together. I think in these situations, at least when people have talked to me about them, it's been one of those things where one of two things has happened. At some point, they have thought that the other person would change one of those core things. Like, they want kids now, but maybe in 10 years they want. Or they say, maybe I can change. Maybe, you know, in my time. And, And so what do we do with that particular sort of thing where, like, how do we know whether it's one of those things like, I want to live in Portland. She want to lives in Austin. Like, you know, that, that may or may not be a deal breaker, but we tell ourselves, like when we go to that precipice that you're mentioning, like, you know, this hard, one of the two of us will change or we'll work it out. And then it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Uh, you know, this is one of the heartbreaking things as a couple therapist is to, uh, is to stress partners over this matter because they feel that I'm trying to break them up. I'm not. Uh, My job is to make sure that they have a future. That's what they pay me for. And when I see trouble ahead, I have to hold them to it. Um, And it's, I, I do understand how excruciating it is because people have a lot invested and they do not want to lose each other. But there's a tendency for people in those situations to bend reality and when we bend reality, we're moving toward madness. You can't bend reality without uh, consequences. Uh, reality is the safest mother, but people often don't believe that, and in the face of loss, they'll do all sorts of things. So 
uh, you know, I, I, there, by the grace of God go I, I understand it. Uh, it, it, it doesn't please me to put them in that position. But again, uh, you know, somebody has to uh, stand on dry land. <laughs> and many times both partners aren't because they're so afraid of loss. Uh, that's the biggest thing, I think, with, uh, with people in general. We tend to organize around loss instead of what is best for us. And that includes decision making. Why don't people make decisions? Because they're afraid they'll lose something. Well, that is all decisions. Every decision has a loss to it. There's no decision without loss. So we're in a painful area here when we're talking about these deal breakers with with partners, and often I'm the enemy. Uh, and yet people eventually thank me because it it there again worse things to come than simply breaking up sometimes. And when put into a corner, when people are faced with these deal breakers, they're amazingly creative and resourceful. There's something about the human being that will only solve problems when when they have to. Yeah. Um, and people will come up with creative uh, solutions. And as long as that never comes back to bite them, I'm fine. So I suppose if you're the enemy, I'm the ally of the enemy. And that means okay. that, that, oh man, that's where we are today. No, I mean, so we've talked about the hard side of the relationship, but what I was also curious um, I think what we're talking about here is the difference between surviving in a relationship and thriving yeah. in a relationship, right? Where yes. you can survive with the um, negotiating on your non-negotiables, right? Um, you can you can stay in the relationship and survive into that way. But um, I it's looking like, and, and correct me if, if this is your perspective, that you can't thrive in that relationship where you negotiate on your non-negotiables. No, because one person is giving up a dream or something they need or something they fear. Uh, now, it's also possible that honest people can agree and then time changes their feeling about something. Now, he suddenly wants children and she doesn't. That can happen. But that's different than, uh, you know, setting that up to begin with. Um, now we have things that change. And this is going to be a task throughout the lifespan in all long-term relationships. How are people going to adjust? And how are they going to bargain? Uh, you know, how is this going to work out so it's good for me and good for you? That's a creative solution. Uh, you know, when, when the founding fathers, you know, had to come up with a constitution, they were literally locked. They locked themselves in a room. There's some people who left, but most people stayed there. And I think the the brilliance of that is that if you couldn't, if you had to do something and you couldn't do anything else until it was done, could you carve something that's fair? Could you do something that's good for both people? Yes, you could. But then it's a matter of getting people to do that. And, uh, and I believe that is part of the creativity of the human is that we're able to broker win-win situations most of the time. Sometimes not so much. But even then, I can still make it good for you. Okay, I see that this isn't working for you, and I see that there's no way for you to have a quid pro quo here. How about if I do this? How about if I make it worth your while? Let's throw this in. Let's do this. How about that? Sometimes that actually works, but people have to be willing to bargain uh, with each other, and there's usually a deal to be had. If you look at the country today and government, it looks like nobody knows how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what came up for me is while you're talking about that, I was thinking about 
my my pushback when when I hear someone say like I don't have time to do the planning, I don't have time to no. do this thing that you're talking about. Underneath that, not so much on the couple side of things because that's not my work, but on the planning and strategy side of things, yeah. what I end up always selling to them is like, actually, I think you're resisting doing it because you know there's something that you don't want to that that you need to make a decision on or that you need to come to grips with that you yeah. don't want to do. Yeah. And so it's easier not to do the whole thing sure. than it is to really come to grips with this plan, this strategy, this business, um, right. this life arrangement does not work for you. Yeah. Um, and I, perhaps that's similar on the couple side is that we avoid that because we know at a certain point it won't work for us and we don't want to have yes. that conversation. People are um, cunning uh, without meaning to be. Uh, people are deceptive without meaning to be. People lie. Uh, uh, this is the part of the human condition. And people don't necessarily uh, show exactly what they want, even to themselves, which is why I, uh, I put pressure on couples, because it's under pressure that we're most likely to find out what people really want and what they're up to. Um, we hide our agendas because, again, we have our interests to protect, many of which we're not even aware of. So a lot of this is being put in a position uh, where you have to decide, you have to gather all the data and make the best informed decision you can, knowing that you could regret it. Let's talk briefly about recommitment and realignment and how one might know the difference between whether it's really this loss aversion thing that's at play and you're really, you know, or versus really telling the truth about what matters to you. And I, does that make sense? Um, I think so. Well, a lot um, of what my, my point is, is that um, when you've been in a relationship for a long time, so I'll, I'll make it very specific. So Angela and I, my wife, have been together since 1997. So that's Aww. however many years, right? Um, so there are points and times where we'll come back together and we'll say, okay, like, What's working for us? What's not working for us? Like, where are we? Do we still agree on these things? Very specifically, for instance, one thing that's come up, given our age, I'm 38, um, and she is as well, um, is we have decided hitherto that we, like, we don't want kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes. But we also recognize that we're in that window where yeah. we've seen other people who have said the same thing all of a sudden change. And so as yeah. we're talking about things, we're like, this is still where I am. And I want to make room such that if you've changed your mind, that we can have that conversation, right? Nice. Um, or it, like if something has shifted for you, that we can have that conversation, but this is still where I am today, right? Yes. Um, and so it's just having conversations like that where it's like, you know, not just we're in the relationship and it's comfortable and it works for us, but is this still a relationship that's set up for us to thrive? And I'm thinking... I see this more on sort of the business side of things. And I know because of the work that I do that what applies in business, like they're the same patterns that play out. I see people get in sort of a stasis with their relationship yeah. such that it's like they say they're still in it. But really what it means is it's too uncomfortable to lose that person. Yeah. Um, and that other conversation is harder. And so yeah. I'm just wondering if you have any, any sort of ways in which you've worked with people where they've, you've sort of seen that they're in there and they're saying, Things are good, but they're really just, I don't want to lose this as opposed to this is what I actually need. I, I see that mm, most of the time. <laughs> um, uh, and especially with couples that have been together for a long time, uh, th there are life changes. And, and I'm glad that you and Angela do that. I mean, that's, uh, that's 
it sounds like you guys are are very uh, wise uh, beyond your ears, your years, and you're still both Thank very, you. young, by the way. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's an important conversation to have, um, and recommitment. You know, I love recommitment ceremonies. I think we should probably contract to uh, to remarry at certain times and and redo our vision for the future, um, because we're de- we're moving through time together and things change, like empty nest or change of career or illness or any number of things that can change the the playing field. So uh, it's very hard to get people to do this proactively. Uh, I think you and and your your wife are uh, are unusual. Uh, most people get into a position where one person is already so unhappy that they're thinking of getting out and that forces them to recommit or rethink where they're going. And that's fair enough. Better than doing that than just divorcing. So I, I think this is a, a common problem um, as people are developing and th- what they're wanting, what they're afraid of the changes, deaths and families and so on, their own mortality, all that stuff. Uh, and I think generally speaking, if people are afraid of losing each other, that's still um, a good enough motivator for coming to terms with what could we now agree on, right? I don't think it's a bad thing that people are afraid to lose each other. I think that is normal. I think that's how nature made us. Breaking up literally is hard to do or should be. And that allows us to come to the table and renegotiate. But it should be done with equality and not because this person will say yes to anything and get a raw deal. That is going to bode badly for both of them. So as long as both people are being honest, you know, there's something, I, I, if, if I can say it just a second, um, I, I don't want couples, partners to fear each other ever, be afraid of uh, other things, never each other. But they should fear each other in one sense, that either of them has the power to pull the trigger on the other and, and leave the relationship or fire the other person. That gives rise to a kind of respect and admiration and a sense of there are lines we don't cross. If one person doesn't have that sledgehammer behind him or her, that cannot be employed at any time if the other person behaves in a way that's not secure functioning. That person is causing a problem. Um, We should fear each other in in one sense uh, that either of us, uh, we're doing this because we can, because we agree to, and it's conditional. Love relationships are conditional. Parent-child relationships should be unconditional. But that that ship has sailed. (laughs) And the conditions should be, um, you know, good for me, good for you. So that would be my only caveat in this renegotiation or this re-upping, is that both people are making sure that their terms are met. I'm so glad you brought that up um, because it's one of those things about contract theory or social contract theory that we don't often think of is we think of previous decisions and previous behaviors committing us to that situation forever. And it's like, no, you got to earn that contract, you know, on the daily. Like you don't get to, you know, you can't be like a decade ago, I was really there for you. Right. Right. That has some weight, but it doesn't mean that the relationship is still meeting the contract as it were. Um, today, and that it fits going forward. That's right. 
I've seen people do this around children. I've seen people do this around monogamy. I've seen people do this around where they're going to live or their career or one person wants to have a career. The other person had it for so long. Now the other one wants, you know, I've seen this time, time and time again, and that's normal. Um, but again, we're, we're still, we have some models here um, that are complementary models from the past where somebody is giving up their sense of self, their, uh, their uh, sense of fairness, um, and that will always blow back on both partners. Uh, and that just becomes a therapeutic issue. Uh, it's very hard to tell people that because they're going to be inclined to do it whether you tell them or not. But that's where therapy, couple therapy can be handy. Yeah, especially when there are previous inequities that have been long-term because that's a, that's a really sticky part, right? Because yeah. those, those previous inequities are part of the relationship. Um, that's right. And it's really hard to um, pay down 20 years of inequity, right, um, in, a, in a relationship. So it gets sticky. It actually seems hard, but in reality, it's not hard. Uh, it depends on the people, and it depends on how resentful the person who uh, felt ripped off. Usually, um, that memory precedes the relationship itself. It goes all the way back into childhood. So, you know, when we talk about inequities, uh, uh, we pair bond by recognition and familiarity. The chances that you and I, if we picked each other, are more alike than not are, is very high. There's no angels, no devils here. Where where there's one, there's the other. So that's where it gets a little sticky because a lot of our gripes go way back before we even met. Yet we carry them um, as if this person, uh, you know, this is part of this is the ledger. You know, you carry the ledger, but it actually goes way back. Now that can be unfair, right? If I expect you to make up for every wrong that was done to me because I allowed you to do this, that's irresponsible. I played a part in you taking advantage of me. I played a part in you, uh, you know, it's good to be king kind of thing. So that is a responsibility issue. But these things can actually be corrected rather quickly if people are, have the right attitude. That's fantastic. It, it reminds me, you know, pop culture reference here of John Mayer's daughter, song, Daughters. It's like, oh, I don't know, know that one. Um, so it's like, daughters be good, or fathers be good to your daughters. Daughters be, be, become like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. And um, I screwed up the rest of the song, but it's a great song. <laughs> I'll send it to you, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes. I apologize to all the really hardcore John Mayer fans who have just butchered <laughs> that with. Um, but it's one of those, it just talks about the circle that how parents treat their daughters and sons end up determining how those sons and daughters treat their their partners, yes. which determines how they treat their kids. And we get stuck in this sort right. of cycle. Um, and so, yeah, um, note to self, don't do a uh, pop culture reference when you don't actually know the lyrics. Um, it, it made me think of, uh, what is it, don't let your sons become cowboys or whatever. I, I mangled that too, and I don't remember who did that, but I don't remember the song, but I love it. You know, I appreciate you joining the Mangle Fest for me, right? I, I feel better <laughs> for that, Stan, so thanks so much. Um, I really do. Um, as the guest on today's show, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge. Um, so based oh. upon what we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? 
Well, if I may, I invite them to come to one of our couples retreats that are coming up in Kripalu, Omega, and Esalen. Uh, so I invite you to do that. Uh, I challenge you to sit down and come up with a placable Ten Commandments for your relationship. Um, if it's not placable, if it's not, if it's longer than thou shalt not kill, it doesn't work. It's got to be understood by a three-year-old, a four-year-old, actually. And if, uh, if that's not the case, then you didn't do it. And it, and it is, this is what we do. Um, and then in, implied by that is this is what we don't do. So, for instance, my wife and I have, you know, if one of us is uh, in distress, the other drops what they're doing and ministers. So, I know it's longer than thou shalt not kill. But there was one time when we were flying, Tracy and I do a lot of, we work together quite a bit. And I, you know, she gets scared on takeoff. Uh, and uh, I was just preoccupied. I was tired. And I wasn't having it. And she looked at me with a little tear going down her cheek. And she said, I thought that's what we do. All she had to do was say that. She, I said, screw me, you're right. I'm so sorry, sweetheart. And then I was there. So the reason to have these shared principles, not only because it makes life easier, it, it, it keeps us, it overrides and keeps us, uh, it keeps our feet to the fire that we agreed on. But it also trickles down to our kids. If you want to see, uh, son, how to do this, watch mom and I. Notice what we do. Um, we get into fights and we make up as quickly as possible, and we admit our wrongs. That you know, uh, there's so many reasons for couples to do this. Uh, John Covey wrote a, a terrific book called the, the Family Mission Statement. There's so many examples out there. Do it. See. Um, uh, stick with it. It'll make life easier, and it'll also uh, be an example to uh, your kids or your friends or your family because the couple is the leader. The, couples, uh, the couple is the big bosses, they're the top of the food chain, the two generals. If they're not, then they don't get it. That's fantastic. Stan, thanks so much for joining today. I was really looking forward to this conversation, and it was everything that I wanted to be and a bit more, uh, so thank you. You're a pleasure to talk with, Charlie. All right, listeners, so you heard it from Stan. What can you do within between now and the next time you listen to the show, or a week from now, to come up with your placable um, commitments or commandments for your relationship. It doesn't necessarily have to be 10, but it needs to be simple. It needs to be easy. Maybe it's a couple tweets. Remember, don't make it a huge thing because this is how you operate day in, day out. So you get to pick positively how you want to thrive together as opposed to um, be being into the winds of change. So, And, and, and one more thing. Uh, people are interested in, in being trained as therapists or the retreats, go to thepactinstitute.com, the P-A-C-T institute.com. All the information's there. All righty, listeners. Thanks for listening. Stan, thank you as well. Take good care. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 